Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mind's Eye podcast. You are here with Dr. Annika Vanderwalt um, and Dr. Neil Shuey. We are both neuro-ophthalmologists at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital in Melbourne. And we are extremely excited to have with us today two of the giants of neuro-ophthalmology, uh, Professor Nancy Newman and Professor Valerie Bruce. Um, both of these esteemed professors um, are professors of ophthalmology and neurology at Emory University at the School of Medicine in Atlanta, um, Georgia, um, and they have um, been keynote speakers at the Neuro-Ophthalmological Society meeting in, in Sydney um, this year. We are very pleased um, and honoured to be able to ask them questions about keynote presentations they have given over the last two days. We are going to dive right into it, and um, we're going to start with Professor Nancy Newman, um, who is also um, known for her very innovative teaching styles and her interest in optic nerve and mitochondrial diseases. Um, to kick things off, I'll hand over to Neil. Wonderful. So it's Dr. Neil Shuey here, and I'm with um, Professor Nancy Newman, who's um, given us a wonderful talk on a number of topics, but particularly Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy, um, which is a really interesting topic that we often come across in neuroophthalmology. Nancy, I'm wondering if you could just start by telling us uh, a bit about the definition of Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy and the typical patients that we see it in. Certainly. So um, patients with Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy are typical young men uh, in uh, the age of 15 to 35, uh, who have a bilateral, often sequential optic neuropathy with central vision loss, uh, uh, deteriorating over months, and then stabilizing and only rarely improving. Uh, it is a disorder that is due to point mutations in the mitochondrial DNA, and therefore it is inherited in a maternal fashion, which means that only women can pass it on to all their children, and then only the daughters can then pass it on to the next generation. Uh, the male predominance, which I was talking about, which is close to 90%, depending on the population you look at, is not explained by maternal inheritance and may relate to a factor on the X chromosome, which affects phenotypic expression, but that's not well known. And so when you talk about that 90% male predominance, that sometimes leads to uh, confusion when we have patients outside that group with older patients or, or women. Are there any um, clues that you have to the diagnosis in those circumstances? So, of course, before we had the ability, uh, starting in 1988, to molecularly confirm on a blood sample or any sample that contains mitochondria mitochondrial DNA, before we had the capability to molecularly confirm this disorder, one of the clues was to look in the back of the eye. Uh, when someone is losing vision acutely, uh, many of these patients will have a classic appearance to their optic nerve, which looks a lot like true swelling but does not leak fluorescein on fluorescein angiography uh, in the late phases and therefore is probably more of a metabolic swelling. And that used to be the way you would have a clue to the diagnosis, especially if it were an atypical patient, as you say, outside of that age range um, or uh, a woman. 
uh, since we now have molecular diagnosis, the phenotype of Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy has absolutely expanded to include patients who have had the onset of vision loss as young as age one uh, and as old as age 87. Uh, similarly, uh, there are women, and similarly, there are patients, even if you look at their fundus in the acute phase, have a completely normal appearing optic nerve. So clearly, um, if you see anyone who has a bilateral optic neuropathy, and you may not clue into it until the second eye goes, um, you should always consider labors, especially if they don't get better, which is why a lot of these patients get misdiagnosed initially as something like optic neuritis, although be, be very careful, labors patients do not have pain. They do not have pain on eye movement, and that's that's one of the clues. And if an optic neuritis doesn't get better in addition to NMO and MOG and all these other things you might think about, do think about if it's bilateral, the possibility of labors. One of the um, other signs that's been described is the circumpapillary telangiectasia, which I personally find very difficult to, to see. Do you have any tips on how that might be uh, easier to pick up or to define? So again, once we had a way of molecularly confirming these cases. We did a study in which we looked back and s to see, even in the acute phase, how often findings like that were 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 found. And it's just under fifty percent. Even if you were being very very generous in your criteria of what someone might have put in the chart, like a little hyperemia or a little telangiectatic vessels, um, more than 50% of these patients have completely normal fundi. What about the um, the turnaround on the molecular diagnostic testing is, is weeks in our institution. Um, and so there's often a lot of anxiety and, and waiting around for that result. Um, what about OCT scanning? Uh, do you think that there's any role for that? We, you see some patients with ganglion cell layer losses. I imagine that's not very specific. So again, um, the fastest turnaround that most commercial labs will be willing to offer you is two weeks. Even in the clinical trials we're doing, the fastest we can get a result is two weeks. Um, and that's my own institution doing the uh, testing. Um, so you are right. There is a period of time when you don't know for sure. Of course, if they have a family history of the disorder, you can be pretty comfortable, especially if they present classically. The OCT, uh, certainly of the peripapillary retinal nerve fiber layer, is useless because uh, any loss of fiber is going to be compensated by the fact that you have this metabolic thickening of the uh, peripapillary retinal nerve fiber layer. The ganglion cell, macular ganglion cell OCT, uh, really won't start to show thinning until by the time you get that molecular result back. Um, uh, it, it's not going to be really something you see until between three and four weeks after the onset of vision loss. So uh, if, if by some chance you've um, not testing them until they've had their vision loss for a month, sure, the ganglion cell analyses will, will show some thinning, but it would show some thinning on any cause of optic neuropathy, so it's not specific to labors, and I don't see how it would necessarily be very helpful.
Um, thanks, Nancy. I guess once you actually do get that molecular test back, the dreaded situation is actually having to tell the patient. And it's often a very distressing situation. And, you know, Neil and I have had clinics where we had three patients that we've had to all tell in the same time and everyone leaves extremely drained. Um, but I was wondering, after you actually break the news, I mean, the first question is also, well, what can I do about that? Um, and I know that in your talk, you talked about symptomatic treatment versus more perhaps disease-modifying treatment. And I was wondering if you could just give us your approach to um, explaining this to patients. Certainly. I, I wouldn't um, minimize to even begin with how powerful and important it is to give a patient some control over their disease by giving them knowledge of the disease. Uh, like many neurologic illnesses um, that cannot be treated, uh, there is a great deal of importance when you give somebody an accurate uh, idea of prognosis, natural history, and exactly what's going on and empower them because they have this new knowledge. And I, I don't think you, you can emphasize that too much. Um, so beyond that, uh, there are two sorts of patients. There are the ones who come from a family history of labors, and so they've seen firsthand what's happened to their family members, and that's both good and bad. Um, they have seen the devastation that being centrally blind can give, uh, but they have also probably seen their family members overcome this, get through it, and lead productive lives. So that's one set of, of patients. The majority of patients I see, either because I've made the diagnosis or because they come essentially for a pilgrimage to have a conversation, um, this is the first member of their family to be diagnosed with this disease. Um, again, giving them an idea of why, what, and what to expect, uh, make what I find probably the most difficult thing is they usually come with their mother um, and the guilt that's involved in knowing that uh, the mom is responsible uh, for the child or the son, child at the time, um, having the this event happen is something very important to deal with. Um, I go through the issues um, of that there are ways of helping with low vision aids, but I make it very clear, depending on the particular molecular diagnosis they have, I give them an idea of whether they have chance of spontaneous improvement or not. The 11778, which is the most common mutation, has the least likelihood of improvement. The 14484, which occurs in about 15% of cases, uh, unless you live in French Canada, where it's more prevalent, um, has up to a 70% chance uh, of improvement. Um, if you're under the age of 20, and especially if you're under the age of 10 at the onset of your vision loss, uh, you're more likely to be within that percentage that's designated by your uh, mutation type. Um, so you, we, we go through all that. I do point out that there are uh, old studies uh, out of Holland that show that people with this disorder are gainfully employed, over 80% of patients. Um, and although quality of life is, is going to be affected, um, 
that there are things that they can do, especially because they're young, otherwise healthy, and have uh, intact peripheral vision. The big deal is the inability to drive. And uh, I think it would be wrong to give them optimism that that's going to change uh, in the future. Regarding actual treatments, I think right now, the only thing that has been shown to potentially have some efficacy and certainly has a good risk-benefit ratio because it's completely safe um, is idebinone. Um, it is available in Europe. I assume it's available. No, not here in the United States. Okay. Uh, it's not available in the United States as far as FDA approval. However, anybody can get it over the internet um, in doses of 300 TID or 900 a day. Um, and most people, that's what they do. Um, and then the most important thing is become part of a clinical trial. And as long, right now, it's uh, gene therapy clinical trials. If something else comes along, uh, then it would be that clinical trial. The I think big advantage of nearly every gene therapy clinical trial that's available right now is there's no placebo patient. There are placebo eyes, but no placebo patients. So everybody has the chance of getting an active agent of some sort. I have, I'm masked. I have no idea how the gene therapy trials are going to come out, but of course we're extremely hopeful. And if it doesn't work. Um, there are people working potentially on gene therapy, which will go directly into the mitochondria as opposed to going through the nuclear DNA via allotopic uh, rescue. Um, I definitely want to end this question, th th though, with, with the most important thing that I can offer patients who have uh, new, newly diagnosed labors, and that is to get on the uh, website, become part of the patient support group. It's lhon.org. And uh, the person who runs that, Lisa Poinsonneau, is a mother of a singleton labor patient, the first one in the family. She and I were college classmates. She came to me when her son was first diagnosed and said, what can I do? I want to raise money for research. I said, the kind of money you could raise is a drop in the bucket, put together a registry, put together a support group, put together a place where people can go when this diagnosis is made and where researchers can go to you and say, I need 30 labors patients, newly, new onset within a year to try something. And all you do is push a button and she gets you those names and she's done it. And if you want to see how support groups and social media have changed the way we practice clinical research, the lhon.org website is the place to go. It has amazing links, not only to getting idebinone, but to uh, weekly um, telephone meetings, symposia, uh, frequently asked questions, um, all sorts of things, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, everything else, and there are ways of opting in. And I don't know whether you have the equivalent of HIPAA laws here in Australia, but they, they're basi basically protection laws for patients' uh, protected information, personal health information, and it makes it impossible for me to 
cr create what this uh, registry and this website has done because the patients opt in and then if they say we that Lisa can give them give us their names, they do it. Whereas we cannot contact a patient if we do not have a personal relationship, a doctor-patient relationship with a patient. And in the old days, to get patients for a clinical trial, you would have to contact all their doctors, and their doctors would have to contact them, and then they could come to you. Now, it's completely revolutionized that. It's just not the way you do clinical recruitment for clinical trials anymore. And I think it's a model for every rare disease and even common diseases. That's fantastic. Thank you, Nancy. Um, I think we might move on to another topic, um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, um, which was um, Professor Valerie Buse gave an excellent talk on this. Um, and I think Neil's going to lead the way and ask you some questions, um, um, Valerie. Thanks, Annika. Um, so, Valerie, if we can just start with um, the, the diagnostic criteria and definition of idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So, it's very easy. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension is intracranial hypertension without a cause. Uh, we do not know what the pathophysiology and what the triggering factors are. Uh, patients present with symptoms and signs suggesting increased intracranial pressure, so they have headaches most often. Uh, they may have diplopia from a unilateral or bilateral six nerve palsy, which is non-specific and goes with the intracranial hypertension. They often have tinnitus in one ear or both, which is often pulsatile. And most importantly, on examination, they always have, by definition, papilledema, which is, in a very large majority of cases, bilateral. Um, and then you do brain imaging, ideally an MRI of the brain without and with contrast, as well as an MRV of the head. And it is normal. It does not show any cause for the intracranial hypertension, and there is no venous sinothrombosis. And that leads you to the next step, which is a lumbar puncture, which has two goals. One goal is to check that the CSF contents are normal. So, for example, that the patient does not have a meningitis, any cause of meningeal process, and to make sure that the intracranial pressure is indeed elevated. And this is why we measure the CSF opening pressure, which by definition, according to the most recent criteria, must be at least 25 centimeter of water in adults and 28 centimeter of water in uh, kids, particularly young children. So when we're starting to work up these patients and have that initial discussion, um, that's the first thing that sours the mood in the room when you start asking the patient about having a lumbar puncture because there's a lot of apprehension about that, um, yet it does remain part of the, the diagnostic criteria. Um, so it is really very important to be doing the, the lumbar puncture. Is there any circumstances where you wouldn't do the lumbar puncture? I think we need to do it, uh, despite the fact that most patients are obese and therefore, the lumbar puncture may be technically difficult and sometimes a little painful for the patient. Uh, it, it is important to do it because you really need to make sure that the CSF contents are normal. And when the patient has obvious papilledema on fundoscopic examination, you know the pressure is going to be high. But quite often, the patient has a little bit of papilledema or you're not completely sure 
And sometimes it could actually be pseudo-papilledema. And this is when knowing what the uh, opening pressure is, is very, very helpful to, to help you make the right diagnosis. The reason, the second reason why I think the lumbar puncture is very important, it's because I think it is also part of the treatment. When you do a lumbar puncture, you suddenly decrease the intracranial pressure. And if the patient truly has idiopathic intracranial hypertension, you relieve many of the symptoms. You make the patient feel better. The headaches improve. The diplopia often resolves. The tinnitus improves. And the papilledema starts improving too. And often you can have a very long-lasting effect of the lumbar puncture just because by inducing an acute decrease in intracranial pressure, you change the threshold, the balance between CSF secretion and CSF resorption. And despite the fact that we don't really understand how that works, there is no doubt that if you suddenly decrease the intracranial pressure, you can have a very long-lasting positive effect. In addition, we treat patients with a number of medications which goal is to decrease the intracranial pressure. All the studies that have evaluated these medications have always prescribed the drugs in addition to the lumbar puncture, and this is probably why these drugs have uh, such a dramatic effect in many patients. So yes, I do it. Um, I warn the patient that it is essential. I reassure them. And when the patients are obese, I do not hesitate to obtain it under fluoroscopy to facilitate the technical procedure itself. And in your talk, you um, you mentioned the topic of overdiagnosis of IIH. And I mean, certainly in, in uh, our perspective, we see this sometimes with patients that have been diagnosed by a neurologist without apparently anyone ever looking in the, the fundus, which can sometimes occur. Um, so what do you think of the, the traps for overdiagnosis? That's a very important problem because IIH involves most often obese women. The rate of obesity is dramatically increasing around the world. And so we probably have more obese women than non-obese women in many parts of the world at this point. Chronic headaches are also very prevalent. If you look at the population of young women about one out of four may have chronic tension headache, episodic tension headache, or migraineous type headaches. So the likelihood that you're going to be a young woman who is obese and has headaches is very, very high. And it does not mean that you have idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which remains relatively rare and a relatively unusual cause of headache. So the way to be sure that the patient may have this diagnosis is to look at the fundoscopic at the fundus to look for papilledema because if you see papilledema in a patient who has headaches then you know the intracranial pressure is high and then you have a normal MRI and you know it's very likely idiopathic intracranial hypertension on the other hand if the patient does not have headaches uh, sorry if the patient does not have papilledema you need to be extremely cautious and not make this diagnosis, even if the CSF opening pressure is borderline elevated, because there is a very good chance that you will make the wrong diagnosis and treat these patients for increased intracranial pressure that they do not have. 
And can you address um, the topic which came up in the some of the cases in the NOSA meeting of mimics of IIH? So I guess this is the scenario of the patients who come along um, who would appear to tick the boxes of having a normal MRI and, uh, and an elevated opening pressure with normal CSF constituents, therefore labelled as IIH. But in fact, they, they, that's not really what's going on. What else do you need to look for, particularly in patients not in that um, young, uh, obese female category? So you need to be careful and really consider all the differential diagnosis. And that's why the lumbar puncture is essential. So even once you have a normal CSF content, you need to remain very cautious. And this is why I personally always obtain an MRV in addition to the MRI. Uh, at the time of initial diagnosis so that I have good and reliable information on the venous system itself. Um, cerebral venous thrombosis is a great mimicker of IIH, will be missed almost all the time on a head CT, even with contrast, may be missed on a good brain MRI if the radiologist is not an expert in the field or if the radiologist doesn't know what to look for and may even be missed on an MRV if the MRV is not done properly and interpreted by a radiologist who has the appropriate expertise. A dual fistula, so abnormal communication between the venous system and the arterial system, is also a classic cause of raised intracranial pressure. It is an exceptional cause, unusual cause, of isolated intracranial hypertension, but it can happen, and it will present with headaches, papilledema, and tinnitus. And we need to think about it, especially because the diagnosis can be difficult on non-invasive imaging such as MRI or MRV, unless, again, we use very specific techniques. And, uh, and then, again, in the atypical patient, so, for example, an older patient or a man, or uh, someone who has a, an atypical course over time with symptoms that just linger and do not get better. Uh, you Sometimes I don't hesitate to repeat the lumbar puncture looking for abnormal cells, for example, and requesting CSF cytology, looking for carcinomatous meningitis, uh, looking for elevation of the CSF protein, which when elevated in isolation can reveal a spinal cord tumor which is a classic, uh, again, mimicker of isolated intracranial pressure. So when the clinical presentation is not completely typical, we need to be very careful and, and really make sure we get the appropriate imaging and have it reviewed by an expert radiologist. And um, the, the other problem we have, of course, is the patient is now correctly diagnosed and, um, and started on appropriate therapy, but of course their headache doesn't get any better. Um, and so we, you know, we watch the papilledema recede, the vision appears to improve, um, yet this patient still has problems with their, with their headaches. Um, and you were talking about the, the um, observation about the CSF pressure and the headaches being independent. Um, uh, what what lessons does that have? Because these patients often end up with people demanding shunts and, and other procedures to try and help them. It doesn't always work. So headaches in IIH are by definition, at least at the beginning, triggered by the increase in intracranial pressure. So in theory, you decrease the intracranial pressure, for example, by doing a lumbar puncture, and you dramatically, immediately relieve the headache. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not always like that. Quite often, people 
who have IIH will have headaches directly related to the intracranial hypertension at the beginning. And then the chronic headache induces changes that will induce chronic headaches that have nothing to do with the intracranial hypertension. Additionally, these patients often use a lot of over-the-counter painkillers to treat the headaches, especially before the correct diagnosis is made, and they suffer analgesic-induced headaches. And obviously, the treatment of the intracranial hypertension, for example, with acetazolamide, is very efficient in helping the intracranial pressure go down, helping papilledema resolve, but the headaches persist in about 50 to 60% of patients with IIH. This is when we need the help of a neurologist who can treat those headaches as chronic tension headache, educate the patient, and make sure that the patient does not use over-the-counter painkillers, and uh, and treat pretty much the chronic headache completely separately from the intracranial hypertension. And we know that this is the case when we follow a patient who initially presented with papilledema and whose papilledema has completely resolved, but the headaches in whom the headaches have persisted. Because if the papilledema has resolved, it means that the intracranial pressure has normalized. If the headache persists, there is no point in continuing acetazolamide, which has very little effect on the headaches themselves, or offering aggressive interventions such as surgical treatment or endovascular stunting for headaches when we know very well that these procedures will not help the headaches in the long run. That's fantastic, Valerie, and I know we're almost out of time. I just wondered if you would mind um, just in a few sentences summarizing the main findings of the um, IIH treatment trial that was um, published not too long ago, because I think that would be quite helpful for our listeners. So it's an important trial because, first of all, it's the first true well-designed clinical trial that has ever been performed in the field of IIH and has shown that acetazolamide, it it does work. We have used acetazolamide forever to treat patients with increased intracranial pressure, but nobody had ever really proven that it was the right drug to use and that it was really uh, effective in decreasing the intracranial pressure. What the IIHTT has clearly shown is that acetazolamide does decrease the intracranial pressure in patients who have IIH. So that's good because that's really what we want to accomplish when we treat these patients. What it has also shown is that papilledema decreases faster in patients treated with acetazolamide uh, than in patients who are just on placebo. So again, very important uh, result. However, it has also shown that acetazolamide does not really help the headaches, which is really not surprising. It's consistent with what we were just discussing. An interesting aspect of the uh, IIHTT is that it has shown that patients who are treated with acetazolamide lose weight a little more easily than those who are not on acetazolamide. And since weight loss is a major aspect of the long-term treatment of IIH, knowing that acetazolamide will also help patients lose weight is very important. So I I think these are the main results of the IHTT. The IHTT, unfortunately, only included patients who had very mild visual loss, very mild visual field changes. So we cannot really uh, generalize the results to the whole population with IIH uh, who may have 
serious or or severe visual loss, but it doesn't matter because it was not the goal of the IHTT. The goal was to show that acetazolamide works and it does work. And I think it's a very important study. One more point is the fact that acetazolamide in the IHTT was prescribed at the dose of one gram to four grams and that most patients were taking very high doses. It's important because very often we see people who have been treated with acetazolamide 250 milligram a day or twice a day for months without any effect. And that's really not useful. These are placebo doses. So we need to not hesitate to increase the dose. I think that 100% of patients treated with acetazolamide do have side effects. Those who don't have side effects do not take the medication. They are not compliant. What's important, though, is that it seems that the amount of side effects and the severity of side effects is not really correlated to the dose. Everybody has side effects, and then we encourage the patient to progressively increase, and most adjust quite well. Many patients become nauseated or complain that the taste is altered, which makes me usually very happy because it's the best way to help them lose weight. They do not enjoy eating as much anymore. They do not enjoy uh, drinking sodas anymore. And it may be one of the reasons why weight loss is a little bit easier on acetazolamide. So I explain all this to the patient and tell them the sicker you are, the better you're going to be. So hang in there, take it, and do your best. <laughs> but it's not an easy medication to tolerate. Um, that's excellent. Thank you so much, Valerie. And thank you, Nancy, as well, for your time. I think you both have contributed enormously to neuro-ophthalmological science in Australia already by being here. Um, so we really appreciate it. And hopefully we can record you again at some later point um, from over the Atlantic. Thank you very much. 